Well, it is my joy and honor to preach to you all this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt Bostrom. I grew up here in the Springs, not too far from downtown, and I am the son of that wonderful lady right over there. Um, It's great to be back in the Springs. My wife and I recently moved here from Spokane, Washington. I'm a teaching elder in the Pacific Northwest Presbytery and have served as assistant pastor in a church plant there for the last three years. But we've recently moved back, and it's been so great during this time of transition and unknown and uncertainty to have you guys as a church family that we've been able to worship with and pray with and think gospel thoughts with. So thank you for having me this morning. As many of you have probably picked up over the last several weeks, this summer we are looking at the Proverbs. Vince is preaching through this series in the Proverbs, looking at this ancient book of wisdom and seeing how we can apply it to modern everyday life. Each week we are looking at a particular topic through the lens of the Proverbs in order to discover how we are called to live in God's kingdom. This morning, we'll be looking at the topic of work. We'll explore what work was intended to be, how it was broken in the fall, and how the death and resurrection of Christ revolutionizes the way that we think about work now and think about work for the future. If you're the kind of person who likes to take notes, our sermon today will follow three points. The foundation of work, the futility of work, and finally the fulfillment of work. And my hope is that through this morning we would fall more in love with God, the God who gives us identity and purpose, that we'd be able to fight well the battle of faith in this life through the stormy trials, and that we would yearn for the coming kingdom of God when the joy and peace of Christ will permeate everything. Let us pray. Father, you are the King of creation and Lord of our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would go before us this morning. I pray that these words that I speak would be good in your sight and that they would be acceptable and pleasing as we meditate upon them. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, in junior high school, I started my own company. I was the sole proprietor, CEO, the president, and actually sole employee of Matthew Bostrom's Mowing and Odd Job Service. Very catchy name, I know. Um, I had dreams and hopes and desires as I started this career of the cash that would be flowing in, of working with my hands in the dirt and making lots of money. Um, My hopes also centered on my identity. I thought, if I had this job and as I start in this workforce, maybe it'll give me something. It'll give me a new passion for life, a new joy, a new identity, and a new freedom. And the future was bright, that's what I thought. Within the first week or so of pulling weeds for minimum wage, I was met with a very different reality than I had originally hoped. The future was definitely bright, but that was only because the beating sun was bearing down on me. With sweat dripping from all of my pores, kneeling in the splintery mulch, pulling dandelions all day long, I couldn't help but think that maybe I had done something that I probably shouldn't have. I had an epiphany that it was going to be a very long summer, and maybe I did not like this work thing. Well, when we think about work, I imagine that most of us have a negative emotional response, oftentimes, to the jobs that we are in or the things that we have to do in this life. 
When you wake up Monday morning, what do you feel? Do you feel excited or resigned? Do you feel dread at the coming week? Are you anxious? Do you wish there was something that gave you more passion and fulfillment and purpose than what you were in? Do you feel overtaxed in your job, overworked? Or do you feel underutilized, that you are just wasting your talent away? Maybe you are apathetic and have just resigned yourself to the fact that you have to do this job for another 30 to 40 years before you can retire. We all sometimes catch glimpses of fulfillment in our work, but I'd say that's fairly rare. Sometimes we see that fulfillment, doing a job well, working with a great team. Sometimes we catch those glimpses of what work was meant to be. As Christians, the reality of the broken world, though, should not surprise us. We know that the fall has happened, that what we were given in the Garden of Eden has been taken away, that work is now filled with thorns, and that what we do oftentimes feels meaningless and has no purpose, and there's not that sense of identity that we long for. But we also know, as Christians, that Jesus came to this earth, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here now, that it is at hand. He is making all things new. So what does this mean for us in this transition time? How are we to work in this world that is still broken, yet we are redeemed? What should our expectations be for ourselves and our future? Well, in order to understand our calling and what, is God, what God is making us into, I think we need to go back. We need to have a history lesson in how and why God created us. We need to discover, again, the foundation of work. The foundation of our work is rooted in the work of God. Our God is the God of purpose and joy, the God of will and authority, relationship and service. He has existed eternally as Trinity, the perfect community in and of himself of love, service, and power. God needed nothing outside of himself, but yet he created this universe and you and me to share in his joy, peace, and love. The Bible opens with God creating everything, calling into existence all things, ordering and separating, bringing purpose and life. And on the sixth day, he created humanity as the crowning jewel of his creation. He created human beings made in his image to be deep in relationship with himself and to rule his created order. We were created as kings and queens. We were purposed to be vice regents of the universe, image bearers of the eternal God who were to expand the order and purpose of his will into all the earth and beyond. Genesis 1.1 tells us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is the first verb that we see in the Bible. God created is the first action. And the Hebrew word here is bara. This verb is never used for an action of mankind. It is only used of God. It is creation out of nothing, bringing into existence that which is not. Humanity, you and me, we cannot bara. We cannot create out of nothing. But as image bearers of God, he has given us the ability and the minds and the wills and the imagination to take the created order that he established and to make and mold and create and fashion new and beautiful things. God has gifted us with the ability to be creative, to use the matter and energy that he made 
and give it new purpose. God crafted us to be stewards of this world, to generate great art and literature, beautiful architecture and infrastructure, homes and gardens, cultures and civilizations, all for his glory and for our flourishing. We were created with this glorious purpose, and delight and peace were to always accompany that work. Work was designed to be satisfying. God saw all that he had made at the end of the creation week and said, it is very good. He was well satisfied with the works of his hands. And likewise, we were created to always find satisfaction in the work of our hands. And without sin and separation from God, there was perfect fellowship and fulfillment as we carried out the will of God in the world. God crowned Adam and Eve in the garden with his authority. We read in Genesis 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All things in creation were given to them. Adam was made king under the authority of God. Eve, his queen, was to be the mother of all the future image bearers of God. We have been made in the image of God to create in our own unique ways and the gifts that he has given to us. Think back to the first task that Adam was given in the garden. He was to name the animals. And naming carries with it great authority and weight. And it's interesting that God did not name his creatures. He gave that privilege to Adam. And as God brought them before Adam one at a time, that he could study their nature and learn more about them, he declared them to be alligators and bears, cats and donkeys, elephants and flying foxes and whatever else. Um, And what he called them, that is what they were. It was declarative. Adam was given this dignity and he was given dominion. He and Eve were to work and keep the garden, to rule it. The verbs there in this passage, to work and keep the garden, are translated in other parts of the Old Testament as worship and protect. They're the same things that the priests were called to do later in the temple. Adam, as the first priest in the temple of the garden that God created for mankind, his responsibility was to work, and that went hand in hand with his worship of God. His keeping of the garden was a tender protecting of the life and beauty that saturated the world. The command to be fruitful and multiply implies that as Adam and Eve filled the earth with their offspring, the borders of their home, God's garden, would have to be expanded to accommodate. Humanity would have faithfully worked and kept the garden, expanding Eden until all of the earth was one magnificent garden temple with the aroma of worship permeating its every mountain and valley. Work was never meant to exhaust and consume us. Creation was in harmony with the rule of man. When Adam and Eve willed something in creation and commanded it, creation responded with joy and abundance. There were no weeds or thorns, no disease or death, 
nothing to frustrate or impede their work. The garden must have been filled with their laughter as they worked and played. They must have been so excited to wake every day to discover what new beauty God had for them that day. God gave them perfect work, exactly fitted to their minds and bodies, and God provided them with perfect rest as well. You see, good work was never supposed to be divorced from good rest. God rested from his work of creation and established the Sabbath, a celebration of worship and rest for mankind. Adam and Eve would have rested in joy and obedience to God. The Sabbath was for them a particular focus on the love of God and the smile of his presence, a peaceful basking in his favor as they enjoyed rest from their normal pursuits. But with all that gloriousness around them, all the beauties that they were seeing and working in, the greatest thing about the Garden of Eden was the relationship that Adam and Eve had with their God. Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. When they were done with their labors, they would commune with their God. They had direct fellowship with the king of the universe, laughing with him, asking him questions about photosynthesis and physics and butterfly wings and any number of things. They were the kings and queens of the earth, walking with their Lord, unashamed with all dignity, wisdom, happiness, and peace. And it was all very good. So we have to ask, what went wrong? That is not how we experience life. That is not how we experience work. That is not how we experience this life. How did we go from that beautiful foundation of work as created by God to the futility of work that we experience today? Well, in the fall of mankind into sin as recorded in Genesis 3, we see that being a direct result of Adam's failure in his work. He was tasked with working and keeping the garden, worshiping God and protecting what he was given. Satan could not bring death into God's creation without first destroying God's chosen ruler of creation. So he entered the garden and sowed doubt about the goodness of God. The Garden of Eden was an endless world of yes, endless possibilities. Yes, it was open to them. But God gave Adam and Eve one thing that they were not to do. They were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they were told if they did, they would die. So Satan called God into question. He presents God as withholding something good from them. That in fact, God didn't really have their best interest in mind. That he really didn't want them to be his image bearers. He was withholding something good about himself. But if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would not die, as God had claimed but would be gods themselves no longer under his authority, but made exactly like him. So Eve, we're told, was deceived, lured into thinking that she did not have to be dependent upon God, and she ate. And Adam, as the prophet, priest, and king of God's creation, should have crushed the serpent where he stood. It was his task to uphold the words of God. He knew God's commands. He knew the love of God. He knew what he was called to do. He was called to protect the garden from this very kind of attack. But he did not. He took and he ate the fruit that his wife gave to him and he plunged the world into darkness. In early high school, I would often listen to 90s alt-rock on my Discman as I worked on homework or around the house. 
and a friend of mine burned me a copy of a Blink-182 CD, and I love the song, All the Small Things. I don't know if you remember that one. The second verse begins, late night, come home. Work sucks, I know. And that was my favorite line. I would shout out, work sucks. It was often in my mind, because I had siblings around and parents. And, uh, but yes, I would always shout it, whether anybody was there or not, usually in my mind. Um, and at the time, I was only 14. I had barely experienced life, loss, failure, or even real work. But I could resonate with that truth. The world is broken. Work is drudgery and toil. When Adam disobeyed God, he broke the created order. He broke his relationship with God. He broke his relationship with his wife and with the world that he was called to rule. In profound and devastating ways, he destroyed the order that he was supposed to protect. And God put mankind and the universe under a curse. Romans 8.20 tells us that creation was subjected to futility by God. So the fall brought about sin, pain, toil, disease, broken relationships, and ultimately death. God cursed the ground and caused the rise of thorns, both literal thorns and weeds and figurative thorns and weeds into the world and into our lives. No longer would creation work with man, but it would work against him, fighting him, always bringing futility with sweat, hunger, and storms and pain. Work became exhausting, mindless, backbreaking, aimless, and filled with sorrow. No longer were we working out of joy and abundant light, but we were working just to survive. Relationships were cursed as well. Eve was cursed in childbearing. And as a professor of mine in seminary argued that this was not merely pain in childbirth, but raising children was now heartbreaking work. Pain and tears, loss and brokenness were now a normal part of the family. And we can see this clearly in one of the first episodes after the fall. I can only imagine the pain and devastation that Adam and Eve felt when their firstborn son, Cain, killed his brother Abel. Cain was supposed to be the vanguard of the next generation of image bearers. I can only imagine the time and love they poured into their children, teaching them how to cultivate, how to grow things, how to love the world that God had given to them. But in pride and jealousy, Cain killed his brother and was exiled from his family. The fall into sin brought the rise of the wicked and the reversal of how things should be. Evil in this world seems to win so often, and godliness itself is a joke to the world. And we look at a book of wisdom like the Proverbs, we are tempted to doubt its truth. Do the Proverbs even work? Does this wisdom hold true? In our passage today from Proverbs 28, Verse 18 tells us, Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. But how often, when we try to walk in integrity, do we stumble and fall, and the one who is crooked walk over us laughing? Or in the next verse, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. We all know people who work their tails off and barely make a living And those who are lazy and run after all kinds of evil are healthy and happy. The faithful are often cursed and the generous are often taken for granted. 
The greedy get ahead and liars find success and approval. The Proverbs show us how life is meant to be lived under God's rule and gives us principles that are good and right and generally hold true even in this fallen world. But the brokenness of the world and the sinfulness of man often twist the blessings of God and steal them for the wicked. The things that ought to be are often not the actual things. And this leads us to the rise of despair. Where there was meaning, ability, and purpose in the garden, we experience insignificance, disability, and lack of purpose. We have lost the dignity, joy, and the significance of our work. I was in a coffee shop a few weeks ago and overheard a girl near me talking with her friend and she said something that I think is very profound and then sums up what feel that most of us would feel. She said this, I want to know that what I am doing is making a difference. And she was almost in tears with her friend just saying, I want to know that what I am doing is making a difference. We want to make a difference. We want to matter. We long to have what was lost in the garden. Ever since Adam brought sin and death into the world, we have tried to work our way back to that garden. We have labored to mend our severed relationship with God and find again his acceptance and peace. And as humans, we do this in a million different ways, seeking to be good, creating our own righteousness and self-justification. We legislate our own morality, and if people make a certain grade, then they're in and they pass. But clawing our way back to God leads to only two outcomes, either pride or despair. If you try to get to God on your own terms, either you will think you're pretty good and have earned God's favor, or you will fall into despair knowing your own failings. We will either become entitled, thinking that we deserve the Eden of heaven, or we will wallow in self-loathing, knowing that we are worthless. God is a holy God. His presence consumes evil and sin. His law demands perfection. We can never hope to do anything but fail when trying to rid ourselves of the brokenness that Adam and Eve brought into the world. So who will deliver us from this work that is leading us to death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christ is the fulfillment of work. From the moment that Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, God was protecting and providing for them in his grace. What Adam could not do in the garden, crush the head of the serpent, God promised to do through their chosen offspring. He promised his people throughout the ages that one day another chosen prophet, priest, and king would come, one like Adam but greater. And he would perfectly work and perfectly keep the commandments of God. He would offer perfect worship and rescue God's world from evil. In his final moments on the cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. The great work of redemption was done. His active obedience and loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength throughout his life, and his passive obedience of his death sacrificially on the cross for his people was accomplished. His work trumped the failed work of Adam. His death meant that his people could have fellowship with God and joy and abundant life again. There's a strange verse in Hebrews 12, 24, where we are told that the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
The blood of Abel cried out from the ground against his brother Cain. The blood of Abel called for justice against the unrighteous work of his brother. The blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus cries out with mercy. It declares that justice has been satisfied. That the unrighteous have been made righteous. That Jesus has paid for every blot of sin. There is nothing that we could have done to save ourselves. Only Jesus, the second Adam, could represent us before the glory of God, presenting us blameless, robed in his own righteousness. He has restored his, our dignity and purpose. And this grace is an absolute gift. We can never repay what he has done for us. It is this very grace, something that we cannot repay, we cannot do or work for, that leads us to works. It is the very grace of God that leads to works in the life of the Christian. We work not for our salvation, but in response to the finished work of Christ on the cross. God has revealed himself in the Bible as Father and has placed us into intimate relationship with himself through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. Good works and godliness flow out of love in this relationship, which is applied to our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. In almost every one of his letters, Paul divides what he says into two main sections. The first sections of his letters often deal with the work of Christ and what he has accomplished, who we are in him. The first section is declarative. This is your identity. The second section is almost always imperative. This is what you are to do into light of who, in light of who you are. This is what you are to do in light of who you are. The imperative Be who you are. You have been united to Christ. You have been saved from death and hell. You have been declared righteous. You have been adopted into the family of God. You are a royal heir to the king of the universe. You have been set free from the penalty of sin and empowered more and more to die to the power of sin and live for righteousness. For freedom, Galatians tells us, Christ has set us free. We've been freed to love, to find true joy in him, to offer peace with great patience. We are freed to be kind, to pursue goodness, to be faithful, to lead with gentleness, and to live self-controlled lives. We have been freed to pursue the kingdom of God. And then this freedom can be a little bit overwhelming and scary sometimes. In college, I always wanted so badly to receive a holy text message. I wanted a text from Jesus which would tell me what my major should be, where I should move, where I should get a job, what house I should get, what girl I should marry, basically how I should follow his will for my life. When faced with the unknown, with, with doubt or pain, I've often just wanted Jesus to tell me what to do. The freedom of grace to love God, to love neighbor, and do whatever you want out of that love is overwhelming. I find myself wanting specifics, wanting to have everything told to me in advance. But God calls us to trust him. God calls us to depend upon him and to follow where he leads. Not surprisingly, I never did receive a holy text message from Jesus. But his word is filled with instructions for me and for all of us on kingdom living. The first verse that I ever memorized as a kid was 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I just run around the house repeating that. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And that's what we're called to. That is kingdom living. To work for God's glory in whatever we do. To expand the borders of the gospel message. To carry the weak and feed the brokenhearted. As Christians, we are called to seek the welfare of those around us. To continue the mission that Jesus began on earth. The restoration of all things. We are the family of God. And we are to be about the family business. And of course, we cannot do this on our own. As Vince preached a few weeks ago, Christ is the vine and we are the branches. It is in his love and goodness that we are propelled and empowered into the world. It is in his joy and faithfulness that we are sustained. It is his Holy Spirit that enables us to work in this world. It is his spirit that strengthens us to practice the principles of work found in Proverbs 28. Be who you are in Christ. Walk in integrity because you will be delivered, even if in this life integrity brings you ridicule and disgrace. Work hard wherever God has placed you, knowing that Jesus is the bread of life and he will sustain you. Be faithful, steadfast under trial, knowing that eternal blessings and peace are yours. Do not show partiality, but pray for your enemies. Forgive those who harm you, for God in Christ forgave all your sins. Be generous with your time and possessions, knowing that everything belongs to God, and we are stewards of his resources. Be truthful in all of your words. Build others up through teaching, rebuking, correcting, and blessing with a tongue seasoned in grace. Provide for your family. Protect the innocent and serve the needy. Be open-handed and live in harmony, trusting that the Lord will enrich your soul. Learn to rest in him. Walk in wisdom. Pursue God in his word and in prayer. Seek to have the mind of Christ. Give to the poor. Be on the lookout for those in pain or despair or those who are exhausted by this life. Do not fear when the wicked rise, for they will perish. The one who hopes in the Lord will increase forever. So grace and peace, church, be who you are. Your identity is in Christ and he is making you new. I saw a meme this last week of a cross-stitched pillow that said, when work feels overwhelming, don't worry, just remember you're going to die. (laughs) And I am sure that um, it was meant to be pessimistic and a fatalistic look at life, kind of in the same vein as when your dog dies, don't worry, you have to pay taxes. Um, but when work feels overwhelming, just remember that you're going to die. And it made me laugh, but for the Christians, there's actually hope, great hope in that statement. This is not the end. This is not as good as it gets. We will have perfected joy, hope, peace, rest, and glorious work to accomplish when we leave this earth at death. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus ushered in a new age. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We live now in the time of engagement. We do have the sure promises of Christ as our own, but we wait and long for the consummation of all things. We wait with expectation for the great wedding feast of heaven when we will be united with God forever, with no more sin, 
fear, pain, sadness, or death to keep us apart. We wait for the return of Christ when he shall descend in power and restore all things in a new heaven and earth. The whole creation has been groaning under the corruption and futility of sin and death. But this broken world will shake off every evil and agony at his return. We shall all be perfectly fitted to our work and rest in their new creation. We will all experience again what it means to have perfect satisfaction, shalom, this peace that is all-encompassing. Rest shall permeate our lives. We will forever reign as sons and daughters of God, kings and queens of creation. We will continue the work of kingdom expansion, proclaiming the glory of God to the ends of the universe. There will be no weeds or worries. Creation will never work against us again. Disease, decay, these wasting bodies, everything that fights against our minds, bodies, and souls now will be no more. No longer will matter and energy be able to harm and destroy us in the new creation. We are told that what is sown is perishable, but what is raised will be immortal. Creation will work with us in ways that we can barely even imagine right now, working again as it did in even greater ways for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And mostly, we will be reunited with our God to walk in the cool of the day, basking in the laughter and joy of the Lord. I hope we can all learn to long for that day, to work for his kingdom now, to store up treasures in heaven where our king and father richly rewards his children. If you are in Christ, you will hear the mighty voice of God saying to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is a guarantee. So as Paul exhorts us in Colossians 3, whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Let us work well while we wait for that day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the king who is at work in this world. We thank you that you love us and care for us so completely that you would rescue us from our sin and slavery. God, I thank you that you died for us, that you brought us again to your kingdom, that we can forever experience what it means to be satisfied in you, that we will again walk with you in the cool of the day, talking and laughing and discussing where we should go next and what we should do. Lord, I pray that you would guide us, even now in the futility of our work, when we seem, when the life around us seems to be meaningless when there's so many frustrations and disappointments, Lord, I pray that you would give us grace. Help us to see you. Help us to remember that this is not our home, that we are citizens of a greater country. In your name we pray, amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. The work that we could never do, he accomplished for us. And this meal, this table for us today, is a sign and symbol of that work. The finished work of Christ is represented for us. Visible to our senses, we can taste, see, and touch it. And it is meant to be a representation that what God did in the past 
what Christ accomplished on the cross, it is real and true for us. We take these crackers and we take this bread and it is but a small hint of the physical reality of the new heavens and the new earth that await us. God has called us to himself. He has shed his own blood on our behalf. He has broken his body for you and for me. If this is your story, if you believe in the finished work of Christ on your behalf, this table is for you. And I invite you to come and take and eat and drink this meal together. But if it is not your story, if you do not believe that Christ is all that you need, if you do not trust him as your Lord and Savior, we ask you to refrain from this meal. But we do hope that you would ask one of us, ask anybody who comes up here to take this meal about the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. For in this meal is represented the greatest truth that we could ever imagine, that God is for us and nothing can be against us if he is for us. We have a few um, words of instruction. Um, The rings on the inner tray are wine. On the outer tray we have juice. We have gluten-free bread in the bowl and regular glutinous bread um, is what will be handed out on the sides. You guys can come down these two middle rows and then we will come out the side there. Um, I think that's all as far as instruction goes. Um, Therefore, let us proclaim our faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. And as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again.